0: Okay, hey, well, Morena, good, morning. good morning. Good to see you all. Um, that book, That Leaders Might Last, um, so that you know what it's written out of, and you could borrow it from Bruce if it might be useful. Um, it's a book that I don't, I don't do what I teach in that. You, know, you have to be really honest. It's a book about Jesus and how Jesus journeyed through trial. And it came about because I had a season where the trials of life, I come from a colorful, um, wider family. You interpret that how you want, but you'll get the picture. And uh, there just came a season of my life in my 30s where I, I reached a point as a pastor saying, God, I'm not sure I know even where you are anymore. Because God wasn't answering my prayers for people I cared so deeply about. And I felt unbelievably disappointed in a God who it felt to me was betraying me. So I had to deal with this emotional journey, which was really painful, at the same time as living in an Asian culture as a pastor in a church where you have to keep face. And uh, it's, very, it's actually very unhealthy um, as a scenario. And so I, I thought, well, where is hope? It has to be in God. I can either be angry with God for the rest of my life, or I can choose to forgive God for my, perceived, my, my perception that He hasn't done what He should right? He's done nothing wrong but in my perception. So forgive it and let go and move on with no answer for the apparent injustices ever in this life. And and it's a, it's a choice of two paths. And so I thought, well, I've got to choose this path. And so I just studied Jesus. Because Jesus is outstanding and we'll never equal him. But it's, it's a good goal to go for, because if you aim there, you might hit there, you know? And uh, so Jesus, he's confident in the midst of conflict. Uh, but also, He didn't just like deal with conflict well. He created conflict. He's so confident that he creates the stuff. You know, Um, he knows how to be in the midst of intense busyness with crowds around him, but then also to retreat and and to find peace. He stands in the midst of what were some phenomenally intense scenarios with people wanting him dead, and he is at peace. That's that's rather remarkable. So there's twelve reflections in there. They're very simple. Each out of a scripture, uh, looking at the Jesus that we're not like, but that we, we try to be like. So, yeah, yeah. So I've read it a couple of times too, um, you know, just, uh, and, and have benefited because um, Jesus is amazing. Yeah, okay. Hey, well, um, I hail from uh, Tauranga these days, originally from South Taranaki. Uh, I'm married to Heather uh, for 14, coming up 15 years. Uh, we have four boys, now aged 12, 10, 8, and 5, so, so the home is, uh, is full of energy. Um we, we came back to New Zealand in, at the end of 2010, so we're coming up 10 years back now, um, from a sense of call, instead of to go to mission further afield, to come to New Zealand on mission. And, and the sense of call that we had, uh, which you don't have to believe, but this is what we, we felt, uh, was to take on evangelism in New Zealand. Which is a very broad sort of scope. And so logically, it begins with meeting key church leaders throughout the nation and just surveying the ground. And what I found was that in ministry in New Zealand prior to that, I had certain wisdom for New Zealand, but because I'm in the context, I can't see it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, the, I guess, the illustration of the frog and the water that's warming up, but, but you just can't tell. When you're in the midst of things, you've got certain blindness to the environment you're in because it's your environment and that's your normal. So you're not able to always analyze it. So, so One of the, the, the difficult things about culture is that culture that we're in is also in us. And so we don't always have the ability to stand separate and analyze it. So spending nine years in Asia... I found myself over here looking at someone else's culture, feeling immediately offended by some things that were within the church culture and choosing to be completely silent on them because I realized it would be cultural judgment, like money and wealth in Singapore is phenomenal. So I just stayed silent on money for a full year before I made any comments about it to try and understand how the differences. When I came back to New Zealand, though, it's like I looked with a new set of lenses, And to me, I've just seen opportunity for the gospel thoroughly everywhere within this nation. The challenge is the way that we think, because the way that we think determines what we do. The way that we think determines what we can even see. Um, I think that there are opportunities for the gospel in every culture, in all times throughout history, everywhere. Everywhere. The problem is that when we're in a culture and it's changing, like ours is very fast, we're in these modes. We perceive it a certain way. But culture shifts to there. And what we're actually struggling with in outreach is that disconnect. So, so we have a number of things we're involved in that sit within that space. Now, I'm, I'm going to bounce you through a quite a strange message today. I'm going to move myself slightly too so I can uh, watch the screen occasionally to see what I'm saying. It'll be really interesting to find out. What I felt when I came to just um, you know, say, Lord, what, what do I bring on this Sunday? There's typical things I'd bring. Even from being in here this morning, logically, there's things that I could say in response to things I perceived from amongst you. But I have felt today to treat you like a bunch of leaders um, because I think the Lord says there's maturity in the house. And so this is sort of more going to be leadership level. And I trust that you know God and that you love God and you've got all those basics sorted out. And what I'm going to talk about largely is strategy. And I'm going to go all over the place, but with intent to come to a point at the end. So I hope that that sort of makes sense um, for you. So let's, let's delve in and, and take a ride. Uh, one of our current things we have uh, happening is Hope Project Christmas, and I have somehow not connected. Did, did I do that? I did do that. I went both ways at once, though. I'm going to have to get you to click because I'm not working. Um, so the cross that you can see, which says Amazing Grace is the theme um, for or the graphic design concept that sits behind Hope Project Easter. On the next one here, you see love, the reason for the season. Aroha, the reason for the season. These are design concepts sitting behind Hope Project Christmas. And the goal of this current project, which is where our focus is this month and right now, is nativity scenes have been removed from our nation, right? And we've discovered meeting pastors groups through the country that. Um, councils have been separating themselves from churches. Um, they won't join for carol gatherings anymore. We've got council-run carol gatherings with no carols with Christian lyrics in them. Nativity scenes have been removed from city and town decorations almost the whole length of our country the last 15-ish years. So, so we are in the de dereligisifying of Christmas. So we could protest it and say this isn't right, or we could do something about it. What would happen if one, two, three hundred thousand Christians chose to do this one simple thing— we all put nativity scenes back into Christmas. So on this next one, you'll see on the top left, Christmas cards. Buy them with nativity scenes. Give them away. Facebook posts. Put up something related to Jesus and nativity and Christmas, and just say Merry Christmas. You don't have to preach. Just make it visible. A hundred friends see it. You know, and we can create these impressions. Um, you can group-fund billboards, you can put Window Decal on windows and businesses and shops. Um, on the next one here, um, if we can Oh, interesting, if we just I'm working. I'm working. You can do, um, so there's billboards. Um, These are some things happening. We've created a a history story on the first Kiwi Christmas. Uh, The next picture here is a church in Auckland putting up a billboard already. The next is Rob Grinley, my friend, who's um, visiting with us here today. Some of you will uh, all know each other, uh, who with the Salvation Army in the central city has cut out this nativity imagery and placed it on top of the building. Um, 32,000 cars passed drive past each day and potentially see that hundreds of thousands of christians cities and towns in three to five years the average new zealander when asked is christ still a part of christmas in new zealand culture could it well go yeah 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 there's nativity stuff all around whereas if you ask them right now they'd be no 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 What, what are you putting babies in for that's religiously insensitive you know, Uh, which is kind of funny. It would be like taking, you know, all the Muslim stuff out of Hariraya or all the Hindu stuff out of Deepavali. You'd never do it. Um, We don't need to be shy about it. So um, I'd like to invite you just to join this then. It's just a very simple piece of activism. Do it your own way. Um, What is wanted very simply is nativity and Christmas. And the picture this fits into is a much broader strategic conversation in our nation. And that is how many churches are there in New Zealand? And the answer is one. All right, there's only one church, it's mine, you know, so you guys, have, you guys have to come to Tauranga and be part of it, because my church is the one. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's only one church. How many churches in Upper Huss, and in the Huss, and in Wellington? The answer is one. And so our independence as churches is fantastic. Independently do everything you can do independently. That's maturity, right? You don't want twenty-five-year-olds living at home, you know, um, depending on mum and dad for everything if they're capable of being independent. But the question we have to ask in the unity space is: What could we do together that we cannot do apart? But and what we have never done in the West, because we're we're in a culture as a whole across the globe, is we haven't intelligently had that conversation yet. We haven't yet come to intelligent conclusions to then consider what action steps are needed and what resources and funding are needed and to give you the difficult parts, what staffing and offices are needed because there's no question in my mind that that's logically needed. And were I to give you a business analogy because I've now dug the hole for myself by saying what I just said, right, which I could have somehow skipped but I didn't have the foresight in that second to do so. Imagine that I owned, I'll give you the illustration. Imagine um, uh, Imagine I was a billionaire and I loved cars and I was happy to waste some money. So I just purchased every motor vehicle company and franchise in New Zealand. Now I own 40 competing companies with competing head offices, distribution networks, local car yards, all of that stuff the whole way through, marketing budgets. But for argument's sake, let's just say the variety of cars justifies the inefficiencies. It doesn't. I'm just joking. I'm actually lying to you, but let's just pretend. Um, That's the Christian church and its denominations. All right? Um, there's nothing wrong with denominations, they bring accountability, training, and support, but what they can never do is lead in mission, because mission is geographically identified. Right? The Baptist churches of, of Wellington can't reach Wellington, it's not their prerogative, it is the churches together in Wellington that must reach Wellington. So a denomination's role is accountability, training, support, but it can't lead mission, its role is to endorse and empower mission because it's on the side. It's not the church at the centre. It's a support organisation to say, guys, when you are in the hut, make sure you're engaging your community, but also make sure you're uniting with the other churches to consider those things in mission that you can do together that you cannot do apart. Hope Project Christmas would be a very simple strategy um, that illustrates the sorts of approaches that could be possible as we engage in this conversation. Is that making sense? And the potential of this is quite significant. And I'm kind of off track because this is an illustration point and it's becoming a main point. But, you know, we'll just, we'll just roll with this. But to, one of the illustrations that really fits with um, what is possible here, and I've written a book about um, the unity of the church in New Zealand, uh, which you, some of your pastors have, and you can borrow it if you like, is biculturalism. In 2012, if you asked an average New Zealand church um, would you like to have a te reo Māori language course, the average New Zealand church would go, what would we do that for? It's got nothing to do with church. If you ask the average New Zealand church today, the answer is very different to that. And there are now churches running te reo Māori language courses, and they get blown away by the scores and scores or hundreds of people who suddenly enrol to go along to them. I would say the tipping point in this was mid-2017, not early, not late, mid. That's where I'd place it from my role connecting across the nation. And it only really began in 2012. Here's the process of change. Academics had been working for 30 or more years. The details are in the footnotes of my book. Um, There isn't time for that level of detail here. Creatives then took it into various formats that took that information that very few people would read in the fat book and made it palatable for the majority of us. They won over a key layer of church leaders, including denominational and organisational leaders, who then took it to, with the various media supporting at the same time, various pastors and other leaders, who then took it to their members as they caught it, until we reached a tipping point. And it suddenly went from being a topic that was awkward to a topic that people were hungry to hear about in a five to six year span. And if you look at what happened, the New Zealand church as a whole, as a single unit, capital C Church, as opposed to local church, small c, changed its view on something in a short space of time. What would happen if we could have intelligent conversations about what we could do together nationally that we couldn't do apart? What strategies would we come up with, recognising the possibility of national change within us, which changes the way that we engage with the society? So that's the play space that our work sits within, and engaging with different groups uh, to the level that they're ready for it. Um, To take this to its, its next little sort of iteration... The challenge when it comes to you guys is, is in this, and this is what the message is really about. Our challenge isn't only to know what our mission is as God's people. Our challenge is very simply to know how to achieve it within our cultural context, right? Who's heard a message about the Great Commission before? Who's heard 20 messages, maybe 50, going on 100? You know, anyone more than 100? Um, it doesn't make us effective, What makes us effective is going to be the right heart, but combined with the cultural intuition to interpret the society and the environment that we're in. But it's not just about the culture that we want to reach. We've got to be aware that there is a culture in us, right? So if in my church culture, I just come on and go, oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord, and then I'm talking to my neighbor and go, hallelujah, praise the Lord, he would actually say, what the F? That would be the literal response. What the F? You know, it would, that would, you know, there's a culture in me. You see, what about the culture of evangelism when we first came back to New Zealand? The word evangelism was a dirty word to the public. It means pushing your religion on someone else. That's intolerable. The word evangelism was also unacceptable in the majority of church environments. It meant individuals who push their faith on others, and that's unacceptable. So we abandoned the word evangelism, we abandoned the word evangelist, and just took them all out of our vocabulary. Um, Because clearly, you're just digging a hole for yourself if you talk about that. Uh, But we've still got a great commission, right? Did the gospel change? No, did the need for Jesus change? So the question is, how do we communicate this within culture? And so we looked at it and we just thought, well, I mean, evangelism training, no one wanted it. Very few people were even providing it because no one wanted it, and even the churches that would hold an evangelism training seminar, the pastors didn't want to attend because they might be forced to go out on the street and accost a stranger afterwards, and they didn't want to have to do that because something in their cultural intuition said that doesn't work anymore, and I just wonder if maybe there was something right within their cultural intuition. And if we could go down that train for a little while, which is this is our 2010-2011 conversations and thoughts, well, people don't think religious truth exists anymore. How do you tell the truth to someone who doesn't think truth exists? Can you? No. No, you can't. It's self-defeating. You can't tell the truth to someone who doesn't think truth exists. In which case, what can you do? And here's the answer. You can talk with them about it. It's called a conversation, and a conversation's no further away than a great question. And so the key challenge in evangelism isn't how we share the gospel. The key challenge is how we engage a non-threatening two-way spiritual conversation with someone we fundamentally disagree with. Is that making sense to you? Which is the same skill set as how to engage with your boss when you've got a disagreement or with your wife. It's the same skill set necessary for engaging in political issues and moral issues, for engaging with issues on social media and writing letters to the editor. It's about conversation and communication skills and people skills. And just to note it, the conversation and communication skills involved in having a one-on-one conversation are exactly the same things as marketing and branding when talking to many people. So traditionally we'd have thought marketing and branding, oh, that's all secular. No, it's not. We've got some branding going on here in church today. I'm a branding expert. I hope I'm an expert because you're all judging me based on my appearance to a certain extent. Were I to address in a suit and a tie, you'd think differently of me and wonder what I'm like because I'd be just out of kilter with the culture of, of the room. So marketing, branding, I've, I've had a shower today. I've shaven today. I had a meeting this, um, two weeks ago in Auckland, really early rise. I get up there and I'm really unshaven. It was um, embarrassing. I had no shaver with me um, as well. Um, I didn't look in the mirror, and we'll come to a scripture on that soon, possibly. But, you know, I've I've brushed my hair. I'm very aware it's thinning out, um, this sort of thing. Uh, I've got a shirt on that's kind of tidy, and I ironed it. So I ironed the shirt, because I I came with a 7kg bag for a couple of days, so it was all squeezed in there. So I ironed the shirt. This is branding. I'm aware that the way that I present tells you something about me, and that's the beginning point of our conversation right? It is exactly the same for your church. You want your church to look pleasant and the appearance to be good. It's the same as having good graphics on here. It doesn't make you more spiritual, no matter how good or bad the graphics are, but but it is a part of the communication. So, go and make disciples of all nations. It's, it's pretty simple. Get out of your comfort zone. Make disciples of people who aren't disciples. They need to choose to follow Christ, at which point we baptize them. We then need to continue the conversation to help them know Christ. Simple instruction, but how do you do it? We're called to be not just hearers of the word, but doers. Don't deceive yourself. For if anyone is only a hearer and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror. And he observes himself and he goes away and forgets that he hasn't shaved and drives off and embarrasses himself in five or six meetings in the one day with uh, two days of stubble because the day before was an office day and I didn't shave on it. Um, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty or the version I memorized years ago, the law that brings freedom and continues to do so, um, not forgetting what he has read but doing it, that one will be blessed in all that they do. You see, the greatest disrespect we can give the Word of God is to hear it, study it, and memorize it, full stop. The greatest respect we can give the Word of God is to hear it, study it, and memorize it, and do it. It's all about the application. And this is where I came to a conclusion years ago for small groups in churches, where um, whenever I've led networks of small groups, I've always had the goal at the top uh, for years now, and it says, living the Word. That's what I want before people's eyes every single week when they come to small group. I don't care how much you study the word in as much as I care about how much you apply it. And, but engaging with the application is the really difficult part. To state the truth is a very simple thing. But this is a long conversation. This is a painful conversation. This is about adaption, about reading culture, about attempting and trying things out. This is about making mistakes, but doing it because we believe in the gospel. Because we believe there is a God who loves us, who died for us in Christ, so we could be reconciled to relationship with him, to purpose on earth and to eternity beyond. We have a responsibility to tell it. We've got to engage the awkward journey of working out how. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. What he's saying is your mission ain't easy. In fact, it's going to be anything but You see, Jesus, I'd like you to answer a simple question. You're a pretty wise guy, Jesus, so I'm sure you can answer it. In fact, this is the primary question that every question we're asking you these three and a half years is. Um, Are you the Son of God? Pretty simple question. Come on, Jesus, answer the flipping question. Come on, Jesus, why are you hiding from my question? Let me ask it a different way. Let me ask it a different way. Let me ask it a different way. One year, two years, three years. Jesus, would you just tell us, are you the promised one? Are you you the Messiah? Are you the one who will come from God? Jesus refused to answer their question. It's not easy. Because if he answered the question, he might get himself killed. Jesus eventually answered the question, and he got himself killed. Jesus' method of evangelism, here it is. Jesus talked with people with an ear open to the Holy Spirit. Have a think about this. You see, there's no one method. This is, this is the way that I was brought up. I was brought up to believe there was one set approach to evangelism and that I needed to engage with a method and take it to people and then I'd done it, notch in the belt, the deed was done. The problem is when I tried to engage with it and do it, it didn't work. And so how many years can I push myself to do something that isn't working and isn't seeing people's lives changed? until I discovered that Jesus' method was conversations. Isn't that releasing? And are conversations always going to be the same? No, they're not. Because every conversation is like an adventure, and when you begin an adventure, you don't always know where the adventure is going to end. Jesus engages with the Samaritan woman. He begins with small talk. It's quite a funny conversation. They're at a cafe called The Well, and he begins to try and say to them, to say to this woman, could you buy me a coffee, please? And she says, but I see you've got no money. And he says, well, if you knew who it was who's asking you, you would ask him for a coffee, and he'd give you an urn of coffee that would never run dry. It would run forever. You'd never even need to put water in it. And she's like, no, no such urn of coffee even exists. Do you think you're even better than our ancestors who gave us this cafe? And Jesus says, you need to understand, I'm the coffee of life. All right? All right. So think about the DNA of the conversation. Jesus' conversation with her was a humorous interaction. Jesus was engaging in small talk until he had a word of knowledge about her husband or lack thereof, and suddenly the nature of it changed. Let's have a look at a parable. Um, Can I have my cup of um, my water, please? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Jesus told his disciples. There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So the context here is a manager who's been caught out and he's dishonest. Where the parable goes is pretty awkward. So he called him in and he asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What will I do? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. Too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Here's the context. Limited opportunity. Hands up. This is awkward. Um, hands up everyone who's eventually going to die. Right? Yeah. yeah. Recent studies show us that 10 out of 10 people eventually die. Right? Incredible. Incredible. 100%. It's amazing. Not 99.8. So um, you've got limited time. This is the point of the parable. So he called, them in, uh, sorry, called in each one of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil. Uh, well, take your bill, sit down, make it 450. He called the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. Hey, take your bill and make it 800. And the master commended the dishonest manager. Isn't that an interesting little piece of verse? Goodness me, Jesus, what are you trying to teach us? Because he had acted shrewdly, and I've got a definition at the bottom there for shrewd, um, having or showing sharp powers of judgment or astute. And then Jesus makes his point. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I think that the two words in bold up there are the keys to unpacking this very strange parable. The first is the word eternal. We're dealing with a limited time frame. You are eventually going to expire. You have a limited time on, in life. What is most important? And I put to you that the most, most, most important thing is helping people come to know Jesus. Everything else is secondary. There are many things that are important. It's not one or the other, but that is the most important thing which begs the question, how can you leverage your life to be the best witness for Jesus, helping that cause that you can? The second is, however, the word shrewd. And uh, the word shrewd here, I wonder in looking at the context, whether it would be accurate to say that the word shrewd here maybe means adaptive. He He was wise enough to see his circumstance and to be able to adapt to it. To create a strategy or approach that would be able to deliver the goal that was best in term in in the vision of the long term outcome. You get what I'm saying? And this is what we need to be with regard to our mission. You see, what is our what is our daily evangelistic task? Is it to share the gospel, or is it to help people take a step toward Jesus? Just think about that as a concept. If I share the gospel with someone, what do I say to them the next time I've seen them? If I share the whole gospel with someone and they don't respond, have I done my job? Can I put a notch in the belt and say, now the responsibility is theirs, job done? Or should I be trying to help them come to faith? What if there's an obstacle that's rational? Don't I need to engage with their questions and try and answer them? But if all their questions are answered and they still show no interest in responding to Christ... Isn't it possible I might still have a responsibility to work out why? You see, could it be that there's a question behind the question? They don't want to respond. You see, maybe their their mother died of cancer when they were young, and they're angry at God because they blame God. So even if all the questions are answered, they don't want to. Maybe they've made many immoral decisions in their life, and they don't want to feel guilt. If they accept that there is a God, they have to accept their guilt to say sorry. But that's a pain barrier for them to accept that or to admit that. Or it's a pride barrier because they've always been someone who's self-reliant and right. So what's the question behind the question? The Apostle Paul said, I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might win some. You see, I believe we're supposed to engage in the journey. I think that the second is the better statement. Consider this one. As Christ's ambassadors in a broken world, it's our primary job to stand up boldly for the truth Or is it to win people over to the truth? You see, think about those two statements for a while. I would say that both statements are are true statements, but which one is more true? I could stand up boldly for the truth, and um, I could win the argument, and I could lose the person. So is that really wise? Or should I be more shrewd and look at the circumstance and pick the battles I can win? Not every issue is the same level. Not everything's equally important. Someone says something that's wrong, and you just feel you've got to confront it because you stand up for the truth, and you justify that by saying you're righteous. Maybe you're a fool. Jesus, tell me again, are you the Son of God or the Messiah? Why can't you answer my question? I think one of the key issues for this in the the church in the West at the moment is homosexuality. And I'm not going to tell you what I think about homosexuality or homosexual marriage. Maybe because it's illustrative of my whole message. Um, Maybe because of the things I engage in. And I just don't want to end up in a conversation about it. To me, it's kind of irrelevant to the core stuff of whether God exists and is real and the mission that I have. And that might be very different for you as a church or whatever. But but consider this question. The camera is rolling. The media are there. It's the new 6 o'clock news. And it's on live TV. And they've picked on you as the representative of your church, as a representative of all the churches in your part of the country. And they want to know your opinion on gay marriage. What are you going to say? You see, because what I want to suggest is that the question isn't at all what you think about gay marriage. The question is, are you a bigot? So let me ask the question to you again. Excuse me, could you just confirm to me, are you a bigot? Because if I can get you to say it with your own mouth, then I can accuse you of it, and it's not me that's accused you. I'm just repeating what you've said. It's good, good people skills, right? So, so excuse me, are you a bigot? Please put your hands up if you're a bigot, if you are judgmental and prejudicial, narrow-minded. Come on, put your hands up, please. <laughs> you know. So, so here it is. There is a moral factor to the equation where we could stand up for what we might believe to be true. But maybe there's other issues. Because if we say, yes, I'm a bigot, we've got no more conversation. Right? So they don't think that truth exists. They don't think that moral truth exists. They already, if they've ever read the Bible, know what the Bible says. So you could say, have you ever read the Bible? And other statements I've made are, who died and made me God? Why are you looking to me for an answer? Other questions I've replied in answer to that one are, well, tell me, where does morality come from? Because if morality is made up by us, then you're completely correct. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. But if morality is made up by God, then every one of us has the finger pointing at us, you know, in some way or another. But the quotable quote can kind of be like the signature on your death warrant, like it was for Jesus, Have a look at the HOPE project then and consider strategy and communication. Uh, The goal is to keep Christ in Easter. um, We also do Christmas, of course, and family uh, one day. Um, The gospel in every home. We're trying to bring a re-education about our history uh, related to the influence of Christ in our biculturalism as well as in our values as a nation. Um, To take Christ into the public square when I came back to New Zealand was considered kind of impossible. People would hate you for doing that. You know, it's kind of like unspoken that you're not supposed to talk about religion in the public square. I felt indignant that New Zealand hadn't used its freedoms of religion and speech to take Christianity in the public square through media for 30 years, basically. There hadn't been an every-home project in New Zealand with Christian literature for 30 years. The freedoms of religion and speech are a case of use it or lose it. So, so let's do something. And now we're a number of years later, and do you know what? We, we haven't drowned under a pile of, of letters protesting us and saying they hate us. None of our homes have been like, or letterboxes have been blown up. Um, the public media has completely left us alone. So, so why is that? Well, how about this? Does the Hope Project say Christianity is true? The answer is no. Not because we don't believe it's true. The HOPE Project says Christians believe Christianity to be true, to which the atheist says, atheist says, Amen. Right? So it's all about what you're communicating. And if you're communicating with people far from Christ who don't think truth exists, when you say, well, Christ is true and you're wrong, that's just confrontational. That's a conversation killer. If you want to build a bridge, you just say, well, for me personally, I think that Christ is true. You know, that God is true and he exists. And I believe it for these reasons, personal statements. That's an invitation to a conversation. And the DNA of those two things is very different. Consider our... uh, And and so as a result, the first project, everyone thought we'd be these traditional Christians. We're right and you're wrong. So we had about a thousand complaints and they were um, tiring to deal with. But we, we dealt with them by responding, because they'd say, "If you, you know, what about this, this, this. So we'd respond by saying, thanks for your feedback. Uh, clearly you feel strongly about this. Um, <laughs> um, our apologies, if anything we have done, has caused you to think that we're saying we're right and you're wrong. All we're stating is what Christians believe and inviting a conversation, because there's a lot of people looking for hope out there, and Christianity offers hope. If you think different, you have every right to think different. It's a free world. Right, so so thanks for your questions. If you'd like us to engage with you on them, drop us another email. But otherwise, uh, we just thank you for your feedback. All but two of about a thousand people came back with another email to engage the conversation. Only two of them finished the conversation with the fu, and uh, you know. So, um, so by the third, I, I can't. I didn't count for the second at all. By the th- the third of the five we've done, we had under twenty complaints like that. And by the 4th, it was under 12, and this last year we wouldn't have reached 10. Because it's built a brand of Christianity that is saying what we're for, not what we're against, and that's refusing to be involved, engaged in argumentation on small issues, which can never be concluded if you don't believe there is a God who loves us and who is good. Until you believe this, this issue is clearly, well, there's no God and he's not good, so you can't define that morality you understand what I'm saying? So, so why would we believe there is a God who is good? Would you like to engage us on that? Apologies. No one died and made us God to give our nation a declaration on what's true for us here. This is a democracy. You know, engage the conversation. So, so the TV ads. Therefore, if you look at the Easter TV ad, which, which Rob is in part responsible for, so you can blame him, not me, and if there's anything else I say that's off today, it's Dean's fault, right? Because he's in charge. So, so just, just so you know who to blame if you don't like me or anything I say. But, but look at that TV ad. And I've had the complaint, certainly, you never mention Jesus' name. How can you be putting Christ back into Easter if you never mention Jesus' name? And I remember thinking this through very carefully when I saw the draft scripts for what the ad could be. But is Jesus in the ad? And I would put to you, absolutely, he's in the ad. He's sitting in the imagery with, with a poem about a man of light who split the night, going through this, this very short poem. You've got like 60 words to deal with in the whole thing. It's not long. Um, and the strategy, which you know, Rob has explained to me far better than I could um, explain it, is that it puts the conclusion into the mind and the words of the audience. Every single person who watches the ad goes, oh, what's that about? Oh, it's about Jesus. So is Jesus in the ad? Yes. If I come up to you and I want to share faith and I say, Hi, I'm a Christian. Do you want to talk about Jesus? Very few will take it up. (laughs) If I come to you and say, um, You know, hey, I'm a religious person, but there's many religions. You know, um, do do you have spiritual beliefs? I'm just talking with people, seeing where they're at. A lot more would take it up. And if I came to you and simply said, Hey, g'day, Um, we're actually just from a local church encouraging people and giving out chocolate bars. Would you like one? How's your day going? Even more people would engage the conversation. So what is a television ad? Is that a proclamation of the gospel? No, it's, it's hopefully the beginning of a conversation. Because if you just proclaim the gospel, you're actually going to have the opposite effect to what you want to have. So, so it's about wisdom. It's about adapting. It's about understanding the cultural environment you're in. What's it going to take to engage people to bring them in? You don't fish with a hammer or a baseball bat. The fish disappear. You fish with bait, and, and you lure them in. I don't like that analogy, of course, for the gospel. Um, We have to be sincere and authentic. So let's take it to conversational skills, and and then we will land. So maybe 10 minutes from here, we're doing all right? Yeah. So, um, wrong way. I've got the clicker back to front. Um, Jesus' approach to conversation. I shared earlier this idea that, that Jesus talked with people with an ear open to the Spirit. This is to say that your Christian witness has to be adaptive to every individual because every person is different so how many different types of outreach conversations will you engage with well the answer is the number of people that you talk with right because every one of them will be different so it's about the heart that you bring to it and what I want to do in just the next little while is to give you three different snapshots of Jesus in conversation to give you a set of lenses by which you can interpret the Gospels to learn from Jesus. Because I've searched for someone who could be a great role model for us in terms of conversational outreach skills, and I've concluded on a person whose name you will have heard before, and that is Jesus. I think he's the man. I think he's the one. I think it's sitting right there in the Gospels, and I think that we missed it because we were inside a culture, and so we have interpreted Jesus through the lenses of our culture, which was a free, open Christian society where you talked openly about religion and about God and everything was fine. So we look at Jesus' parables and we say, here is a man who uses good illustrations from everyday life to explain the truths um, of, of spiritual things to the world. But that's not what the Bible says about the parables, is it? Jesus was a master of confusion. How's that for countercultural for us? Jesus was a master of confusing people. He did it so well through his parables. That even his disciples thought he was going mad. And when he explained the parable of the sower, we see in the scriptures that they were relieved because there actually was some brains or common sense sitting behind what otherwise to them seemed to be on the verge of sheer madness, telling all of these stories with no explanations that people were unable to understand. Consider that. So why have we interpreted the former and not the latter? It's because we've got a cultural lens of religious freedom, but we're losing our religious freedom. Our society isn't the same as it was 30, 40 years ago. So here's some things we need to learn from Jesus. Jesus engaged the interested. The crowds came to Jesus, and he explained many things to them, even though in parables he certainly made things plain. We know this because many people were then baptized, and they would not have been baptized if they hadn't come to a decision point regarding their heart commitment to God, and then to a response point to be baptized. Um, Look at Jesus dealing with sinners and tax collectors. Here's two tax collectors. Levi, he says, follow me. He drops things and does. Um, Zacchaeus, he goes to his home and engages with him. Um, They're talking openly about spiritual things. But then as a transition to the next point. What about the rich young man? The rich young man says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? I think Jesus saw pride in his heart, and every conversation is different. So he said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. In other words, it was flattery, so he called it out for what it was, to get the conversation onto an even keel from the start. But in contrast to that, there's a couple of tellings of it in Scripture, and the second one I've got here, um, Mark 10. It actually says that the rich young man knelt on the ground before Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? That's actually a picture of real humility, isn't it? So, so maybe there was sincerity within him, but it was also mixed with a desire to justify himself and not have to change. Maybe some of us sit in church like that here today, not wanting to change. We're all tempted to be like that. And so Jesus brings revelation to him that actually to get to heaven, he'd have to be perfect. Take everything you've got, all your money, sell your possessions, give all the money to the poor, follow me. Then you'll have eternal life. You know, fortunately, I mean, the disciples go, who then can be saved? And fair enough, fortunately, Jesus was going to die at the cross shortly afterwards. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus can be saved. But I think we've got another lesson here, and that is that when someone's disinterested, you don't just engage with them, because that's foolish. You intrigue them. So Jesus is meeting with uh, Nicodemus, for example, and John. We have these lovely stories, uh, the Gospel of John. And Nicodemus is is, is a humble, sincere seeker, but also embarrassed and and holding Jesus at an arm's length. He he doesn't quite know whether to trust Jesus, so he comes in the dark of night when no one can know and no one can see. And so Jesus says (laughs) something like, to put it in our language, dude, you're you're getting a bit old really, aren't you? A bit old and croaky. He says, man, you're asking some good questions, but I think we need to start this all again. Do you think that you could be born again? Could you just go back in your mother's womb? We'll reset the whole thing and start it all over. And Nicodemus probably laughs. How can a person be born again? I'm already old. I can't go back in my mother's womb. You know, we use the term born again as a Western evangelical sort of thing, right? But back then in the first case, it wasn't. It was an illustration. Jesus intrigues him with something silly. I've given you the next story that's sitting there, uh, which is the story of uh, the Samaritan woman. Exactly the same scenario. It's the small talk that engages. So when it's it's an interested person, you engage with them. When it's a disinterested person, you intrigue them. And here's the people skill set to learn. When it is a hostile person, you deflect them. You see, in a truth-based society where most people accept the existence of a God and whatever else... You just engage with nearly everyone because they're not hostile. But in our society now, we have people who are genuinely hostile. They they genuinely think that religion is the problem with the world. Goodness me, secularism killed more people last century than all religions combined in the previous 2,000 years, right? So it's not like you're telling me a lack of religion is the solution. The problem isn't religion, the problem is bad religion. You see? So, so the opposite of bad religion isn't no religion. The opposite of bad religion is good religion. And if you study history, Christianity is good religion. Has Christianity stuffed up thoroughly? Crusades, inquisitions, witch hunts? Totally. But is that Christianity? Or is the problem that the people who did those things weren't actually Christian enough? You see, the problem is actually the opposite to what people would suggest. I don't know, tell me, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Words of flattery precede it. Jesus sees their intent. He's not drawn in by the flattery. He says, why are you trying to trap me? He calls it out. He says, show me a coin, and with profound wisdom, because it's a profound topic on the separation of church and state, really, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Are the woman caught in adultery? Jesus doesn't even answer. Now, the woman's caught in the act of adultery. In other words, they had a foolproof case of guilt. The law very clearly said that she should be stoned to death. So they had a foolproof piece of theology from Jewish law. And so they say to Jesus, what shall we do? It's a trap. Because under the Roman Empire, they don't have authority to kill. And it's kind of a die if you do, die if you don't situation. I'm just going to stand up for the truth. I'm not going to be you know, battered about into intimidation and become scared because people are against Christianity and our things. I'm just going to state it like it is. Yeah, yeah, but, but maybe it's foolish. Maybe Jesus answering the question that this woman deserved punishment, which she did, as does every sinner, um, was just not going to be very wise. So what does Jesus do? The cameras are rolling. The microphone's on him. Give the quotable quote, mate, and we'll kill you. We'll hang you on that one. And he gets down on the ground, and he just starts drawing. And I actually think he was filling in time. I think he didn't know what to say on that one. (laughs) But is he scared? No, because he's Jesus. He's the cool dude, right? He's chill. So he's just like, but you see, you don't have to answer every question. Sorry, I'm not sure what to say. They push you for an answer. Well, nah, sorry, I'm still not sure what to say. Because if I say one thing, you know, it's, I think it's going to come across wrong. I haven't got the words for you. And just hold your line. Just don't answer the question. And then he gets the wisdom. He was probably saying, Holy Spirit, what should I say? All right? Then he gets the wisdom and he says, uh, you who is without sin, cast the first stone. And then he goes back down again. Now, people suppose that maybe he was writing down adultery, you know, theft, you know, or whatever, and people saw their own sins. We don't know what he was doing. Um, We need wisdom. The scriptures say, don't throw your pearls to the swine. We need to relate to different people differently. We need to adapt. Bringing it to a conclusion for you the master commended the dishonest manager, it's quite profound. Right, because it's the very opposite to what everything else in the Bible seems to say, commending someone who's dishonest. But it was because he acted shrewdly, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Use worldly wealth. Use your opportunity. Use your opportunities at work. Use everything you can to gain friends so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. My friend, the question is, how do you leverage, therefore, every opportunity and everything you have For the gospel, you are no doubt serving God diligently already. You are already wanting to make a difference with your life, to impact the world, to impact the campus you're on, the workplace you're in, the community that you live in. What could you do differently? How could you look at that scenario? You know, it's like evangelism—that's a truth confrontation, just to tell the truth. But but you possibly, you know. Winning the argument, losing the person. How could you do differently to come around the side beside them in a conversation and to engage? But how could you have that same thinking in your community ministries and the profile and branding of your church and um, the way that you relate to your neighbors? What could you attempt? What could you try as an experiment to see if it works? You've been next to the same neighbors for years and years. You haven't had a breakthrough with them. Okay, you've learned something. What you're doing isn't working, right? Right? So, so the question is, what could you do that might work? And maybe you'll need to experiment a few times. But, but how could you freshen that spirit to say, Lord, use me again. Help me to see the opportunities that are out there. Because I already know what the Great Commission is. All right, I already know it. I, I've heard the Scriptures before. Lord, I want to be a doer of the Word. I want to obey them. I've got to bring your gospel into culture. I've got to adapt. Lord, give me eyes to see. I used to see what I could do differently. And that's my challenge to you today. So I'd like to invite you just to stand. I'm going to leave that with you to reflect upon into the, even the months that come. Um, and really just our response, if any, is probably simply, Lord, use me, if the worship team want to come. you know, We're here to say, Lord, use us. We all get stuck in the rut, right? We all get into a pattern of doing things that yields a certain result, but we've tried everything we can sometimes we just need to hit the reset button and to come back and say, what could I do differently? Father, I pray that that simple word would be seed here today into the mind and hearts of every one of us, that we would take some time to consider what we are doing, uh, to seek to be a witness for you, to friends and family and neighbours and colleagues and schoolmates and whatever else. But help us, Father, to then consider what we could attempt or do differently that we would begin to try new things and by your grace that this would open up new possibilities and new results. Lord, may this seed be planted in this church's hearts, Lord. I pray that it would in time to come contribute to all the conversations they are having uh, and that this would bring about an increase in fruit. So uh, bless them, I pray. Help us to serve you well, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Awesome.